this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever wondered what your earnout is going to look like? You know, an earnout is a proportion of your deal set aside for future performance. So if you hit a set of milestones, you get a second tranche of cash. Now, earnouts can be structured based on top line revenue, your achievement of a you know, profitability goal, retention of a specific customer set, maybe sales of a specific product. It can be any number of ways that you structure your earnout. Uh, the buyer usually will be the one that proposes something, and you'll be in a position to negotiate what you think is is fair. In the case of my next guest, Mark Stevenson, they sold their business for eight times EBITDA, and 85% of that was paid in cash, just 15% set aside in an earnout. In in the business he was in, conferences, that tends to be a fairly small proportion. Um, but he structured it in a way that I think was pretty intelligent. There was one thing that he would change about his earnout if he had it to negotiate all over again. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Mark Stevenson. Mark Stevenson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. So tell me a little bit about Media Edge. What kind of business did you guys have? Uh, Media Edge Communications West was a, was a business um, in the conference and trade show space, focusing primarily on real estate. So we participated, produced many conferences and trade shows in the major cities across the country, along with our joint venture partners, York Communications. So why did you need a joint venture partner? Why was that important to you guys? Well, you know what? Interesting question. Um, you know, we were, we were very um, committed to certain markets in the West. Um, you know, we were partners in certain products in, in some of the cities across the country, be it in Toronto or Calgary or Ottawa. And when we, when we looked at potentially selling, it would be, we needed to participate together in order for it to make sense for a potential buyer. So you forged the joint venture to get national coverage because you thought that the company would be more attractive if you were, you know, pan Canadian. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they had, you know, the, the, our joint venture partners had expertise in, in many areas as, as we did media edge communications West. So we brought those talents and 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 uh, products together, and we became more of an attractive um, acquisition for the many groups that were interested in, in looking at our business to acquire. So, did you start Media Edge, or or you know, get involved, knowing that an exit was was imminent, or certainly the likely exit? Uh, no, I, I can't say that. I mean, I certainly got involved at a younger age, along with my partner, and we we built out a business to to do just that, build out a business and, and make some money, but have some fun while we're building out the business. Um, you know, certainly from my aspect, I wasn't looking to sell. 
until it became a little clearer as time went on that we were building a very, very successful business that was uh, being looked at by other potential companies in the similar or same space as us. Who's the we in the company? Did you own the company 100% or were there partners involved? No, no, I had uh, I had a partner um, in Media Edge Communications West, and there was two partners in uh, York Communications. So there was four partners, and uh, you know, as I mentioned, John, a couple of minutes ago, we built uh, we built a, a great business over ten years, and obviously it became attractive to uh, to similar companies out there. And I know the conference space can be rewarding financially, but it also can be quite risky when you when you make an investment in a in a property, in particular a new conference. It often takes a couple of years to get some traction. I mean, were you were you pulling out a lot of money in a way of of personal income, or or were you sort of you know some some people kind of try to make make money, you know, fairly good chunks of money each year in terms of dividends that the business pays itself. And, and the sale of the company is a little less important. Others people pour all the profits back into the company with the hope that they're going to have a, you know, a, big, a big exit down the road. Did, did you guys fall into either of those two camps? You know, I, I think, you know, we took a balanced approach on that, John. Um, you know, initially for the first five plus years, I mean, we, we put all of our profits and our losses back into the company to continue to build it for the long term. And, you know, that's, that's very important to understand. There are a bunch of companies in our space as well that pull out their profits every year and run skinny businesses. And ultimately that's reflected on the product. In our case, we put all our profits back in, certainly in the early days to build, you know, a very successful business for the long term. And, and it proved very beneficial with that approach. So what did you have the business up to in terms of revenue when you decided to sell? You know, without getting into exact specifics, John, we, you know, we were certainly a $10 million plus business on the top line. And, and, you know, once you build successful products, um, annual products, as we did, you know, the, the profits can grow, but certainly, as I just mentioned, we, we put a lot of those profits back into the company to build the, the business for a long term. So as we, you know, built the conferences, built the trade shows, had more exhibitors, had more sponsors, had more delegates attending, certainly it was a very, very successful bottom line um, that, 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 that built that business for years and years to come. Got it. So you're 10 million plus on the top line, profitable. I mean, why not ride it out for the next 30 years? Why did you decide to sell? You know, it's a great question. I guess there's a, a two pronger there. And, and uh, uh, you know, I was one of four partners. I was the smallest of the four partners. I was the youngest of the when you four say partners. Smallest, so, you mean the smallest proportion of the equity? Correct. Correct. Um, and, and, you know, that was, that was one area that, uh, certainly came into play, but we also caught the market, you know, in, you know, Oh six, Oh seven, things were very strong. We had built a great business, great, um, great renewal business. So we had a great following. Our customers were coming back year after year and it, it looked like we were on a great growth curve and it made sense to consider selling. Uh, there was a bunch of companies interested, uh, but again, there was one of I was one of four partners, and as we brought all the products together and brought the two companies together, it, it started to make sense to my partner and I to look at selling. And did you get a whiff of the, you know, the top of the real estate market 
you know, certainly 07, the cracks for, for in retrospect, we can now see that the cracks were starting to form. Did you have a sense that, that maybe, maybe you were reaching the top end of the real estate market and you needed to get out? No, no, certainly there were, there was none of that. I think, um, you know, hindsight being 2020, I mean, you know, with the market changing in 08, 09, and, you know, in, in some senses falling off a cliff, our, our business didn't, um, you know, our retention on, on clients was, was very good. But I think, you know, if we go back to the, the comment a few minutes ago, you know, I had three other partners and I was the youngest of the three partners, not to share ages of my partners, but they started thinking about an exit strategy, certainly before I did. So, um, you know, as we, as we started evolving these discussions and building value in the business, you know, for the couple years before we sold, it, it made sense as a group, as four partners to look at the selling process. And how did you, you mentioned that there were, there were folks interested. Um, how did they make their interest known? Was it, it overt? Like we want to buy your company guys or more inferred or were you kind of reading between the lines? Well, you know what? Uh, I would say that, you know, some initial contacts were made with, with some of the partners um, on our side. There was a broker involved that brings buyers and sellers together in the, the trade show and conference space. And, uh, you know, as we realized that there was interested companies out there, um, you know, we started thinking about the, the selling process. So it didn't happen overnight. And the actual negotiation from start to finish was actually eight months. So when we realized that there were some strategic buyers out there, there was private equity out there, there was a bunch that were very interested in our business. But once it became clear that, you know, we had a business that was attractive and becoming more attractive to potential buyers, we, we started, you know, getting into more detailed discussions with the broker uh, and with potential buyers about the interest in selling. Just to be clear, Mark, you engaged an intermediary or you were, you were fielding calls from these acquirers who were represented by a broker? You know, uh, you know, John, I, I would say a little bit of both. It just happens, as you know, you, you meet people, you make contacts, you're in the same space, you're attending conferences that focus sometimes on, you know, for conference and trade show producers. So there's contacts made and people watch your game and watch your business. But when you get a little bit closer to the discussion about are you interested in selling and, and what's your timeline like, you know, it's important to bring in the right advisors. And in this case, you know, we, we had a broker that helped us bring the buyer, uh, potential buyers and, and us together. Got it. So walk us through that process, Mark. So you, you've got a broker engaged. Are they running a little bit of an auction saying, hey, you know, if you want this business, get us a, you know, get us a, a bid by such and such a date? Or is it a little less formal than that? Like, what's the process they're going through? You know, it's it's like any negotiation, John. There's a bit of posturing and and uh, initial discussions and contacts, and you know, see who's kind of very interested. Um, you know, and once we realized who our eventual acquirer was was very interested, you know, they wanted to lock us down. A letter of intent was signed, so it gives them the opportunity to to focus on acquiring our business. So, and that's what happened. There was a bunch of companies interested, and then ultimately one came to the forefront and said, you know, we're very keen. Um, we're prepared to pay, you know, full market price plus plus. Let's lock this down in terms of a letter of intent and start working through the deal. And, and again, I'm going to go back to that timeline of, 
you know, from start to finish, um, was it eight months, maybe eight plus months. Um, the deal gets interesting. You negotiate, you talk about a bunch of different things. They, they, some of the things work out. Some of them don't. Sometimes the deal falls like to a point where it looks like it's slipping. It gets brought back. I mean, it's just, it's a negotiation and it's so important, um, to have the right advisors coaching you, supporting you, helping you put these deals together. Cause you do, you know, as a business owner, you're, you're building a business, you're, you're creating a business and you're not necessarily aware or sure or understand what it takes to sell a business. So Mark, can you talk about a specific example where your broker provided you with some sage advice that had you not had an intermediary representing you, you would have screwed it up. And again, I'm looking for a specific story. Yeah. Well, you know, one I'll share is uh, again, you know, we were, we were the owners of the business, building the business. We weren't out there understanding all the ins and outs about selling a business. So, you know, our broker would have a better understanding of what you know, multiples might be in the size of our business or the look of our business. And, you know, we would rely on that intelligence, that expertise, that experience that he has um, as to what our business might be worth. We would probably in all very likelihood not get as much money as we did if we didn't have the right broker supporting our deal, coaching us, educating us on what that would be. What did you think the company was worth as, in terms of a multiple of, of EBITDA? Um, you know, it, it's hard to understand, but, you know, you hear different multiples for different industries. I mean, some people are thrilled with a, you know, a four or five or maybe a six. But, you know, our business was very attractive. There was a bunch of companies interested. And, you know, that means you can start getting into the higher, you know, seven, eight, nine. I mean, the business, our business could probably trade at a 10 multiple um, when the market's very good. And our business that we did sell did get sold again, um, you know, five years later. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how these deals evolve. Sure. But we were just going back to how the broker in your case uh, was providing that kind of market intelligence that you guys as a group didn't really have. So, you know, to use a specific example, you know, what were you guys thinking the business is worth? If, if he's saying, you know, hey, listen, this is an attractive asset. I think we can get north of seven. Did you guys have a number in mind? You know, not not specifically. And again, John, because we were fairly new to the whole process of understanding what it takes to sell a business. We could have said, okay, our business makes X dollars on the bottom line and let's throw a six multiple on it and this is what it's worth. Well, the, 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 the role of the advisor or the broker and or the broker is going to say, listen, I just sold a business similar to yours in the U.S. or in Canada, but let's just use the U.S. for an example, um, that got seven times or eight times and your business is that much more attractive. So he was providing that expertise, that intel that helped us get more money for our business. So, you know, it, Again, trying to give you a specific, the, the role of the advisor played a big role for us in getting more money ultimately in our genes at the end of the day. Got it. So the letter of intent that you signed, was it clear, you know, again, from, from what I think a lot of our listeners want to know, having not gone through this process is, is, you know, what does it feel like when, when you've got 
a buyer on the line that you know is really motivated. In your case, it sounds like you had a lot of nibbles to use a fishing fishing analogy, but then you you had this one kind of nibble that felt different than the others. Am I getting that about right? Yeah, no, I mean that's accurate. The, the company that did acquire us was, you know, very clear that they wanted to acquire the business. And again, from my earlier comment, they had a a similar business in the U.S. They wanted that Canadian footprint. We were exclusively Canadian. So they wanted that Canadian footprint. So they, you know, had a bigger punch in North America to compete with other producers of events around the world. And what did they do or say, Mark, that made you feel like they were a little more serious than the others? Um, you know, they knew about our business. They had obviously done a bunch of research. Um, we, we liked a bunch of things that they said about, you know, how we would continue to play a role, um, how our teams would continue to play a role. I mean, many deals are done today where owners and, or some of the the staff employees aren't part of the deal. They're just, you know, the deal's done and it's taken over and, and run by a different group. In this case, it was, you know, we're, we were being acquired by a larger company, a public company, and they were very clear on how the business would look going forward. And they were true, true to their word in that, you know, we're a bigger company. We can offer this. We can offer that. And some of those details are, are very important. Everyone was keeping their job. Everyone was going to play an integral role in the business, not just us being acquired. And they were going to bring their people in and change this and change that. They bought our expertise, our business, and they wanted. They they thought there was further opportunity to grow the business with having bigger owners like themselves. And and ultimately that proved true. Lots of synergies that we could take advantage of from their business. Yeah. And I, and I guess I'm, I'm trying to just drill down on what it was that they said or did that made you think, okay, these guys are way more serious than the other nibbles. It sounds like they had done their research. They knew about you and, and they weren't just kind of superficially aware of you. They, they kind of had dug in. Yeah, they, they clearly dug in and, and, you know, I mean, I wasn't in their war room on the other side of the, the phone lines and, but they made it very clear that they wanted to buy the business and, and they were prepared to pay uh, top dollar for the business so they could grow their business. It was a very strategic move on their part to, to acquire our business. What was in the LOI in terms of offer? Did they say a range? Was it sort of a multiple of EBITDA or was it an actual number? You know, I, 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 <laughs> a few years ago now, John probably, uh, let's call it close to 10. Um, and I didn't frame all those documents, but, you know, I think there was a, a framework in the LOI that talked about multiples because that was important because we were looking to build value, you know, build our numbers because ultimately it was going to be the bottom line of the business times that multiple. So that criteria that's in the letter of intent that we sign off on, they sign off on is, is really the framework of the deal. Right. And so that was, in your case, a multiple. And I understand, uh, can we talk about what the multiple was? I understand um, the closing multiple was, I think it was close to eight. Is that right? Yeah, very close to eight, and uh, which was a very good multiple. I mean, some businesses you know, of that size might be in different sectors, might sell at a, a four or five or six. So that just showed how, how interested um, this group was in acquiring us because we got close to we're very very close to an eight multiple. Fantastic. And so during the the diligence phase, so you signed the LOI. Was there a, a no shop clause, meaning you couldn't continue to negotiate with anybody else? 
Correct. And that was, you know, and that's why they were paying a premium. That's why it was carried in the letter of intent is they had exclusive negotiation rights to our business. How did the tenor of the negotiation change after you'd signed the no shop clause? Um, you know, it was, it was pretty consistent. Um, there were certain things that they wanted to learn about our business and, and, and further down into, you know, certain profit centers, you know, some of our profit centers in Toronto and maybe Vancouver had many more years behind, um, those products than maybe, a a Calgary or an Edmonton or an Ottawa. So they wanted to, they really wanted to learn what the upside was of the business in particular, particular profit centers in particular cities. So, you know, there was a lot of questions. They, you know, their, their, uh, their due diligence was very, very detailed. Obviously they've bought, you know, lots of businesses in the past. They know the right questions to ask. They know the right rocks to overturn to, to make sure they're getting the true picture of the value of the company and what they were truly buying. What was the biggest stumbling block during diligence? The deal, it sounds like it almost fell apart at one stage. What, what was that over? Well, uh, you know, deals sort of meander and, and you get some issues some further discussion points on, usually it, it focuses on the dollar. Um, and Wait, sorry, where when you say the have, dollar, do you mean the currency exchange rate? No, no, sorry, the, the value of the product. So again, you know, we may have a, a profit center in Vancouver that's been around for 10 years, and we have a profit center in Calgary that's been around four years, you know, a, a conference in each city. How do you decipher the value between or the potential value in some of those profit centers? So let's just say Vancouver was worth $10 and Calgary's worth four, but we felt it was worth six. So just a bit of negotiation on back and forth as to how both parties can get to a number that they're comfortable with. And, guess, and it's a true negotiation. Yeah. I guess we're, we're, we've, you know, we've done, I don't know how many 50 or 75 of these episodes now. And one of the common themes is that during the diligence phase, after the no shop clause is signed, certainly uh, the owner or owners typically feel a little bit of a loss of leverage and, and oftentimes deals start to melt a little bit. Uh, so they come in all guns a blazing at the LOI stage and say, we're going to pay whatever, nine times EBITDA for the business. By the time the diligence is over, it's, it's melted away to six and a half. W was there any of that melt in your case? And if so, how did you sort of defend the original spirit of the LOI? Um, you know, you've got a buyer and you've got a seller and you, you got to try and put together a deal. So there's, there's some give and take on both sides. So one of the things that we learned is, you know, one time costs that, you know, they came to us and said, you know, let's use a, let's use a really interesting example. We, we had season tickets to the Vancouver Canucks and, you know, that was a cost. We gave our tickets to clients to use. We, we took customers. So there was a business cost there. And they said, you know, the buyers said, you know, we're going to give up those tickets. We're not going to use them. So let's take that off the cost. So let's just say the cost of the tickets was $10,000. Well, if you're applying a multiple to it, like we were, it's worth $80,000 on the bottom line. So it's not just 10,000. Okay. Take the $10,000 off. That's not really a big deal, 
but it was closer to eighty or a hundred thousand dollars that was going to be affecting the business. And they're saying, we're not going to buy that, so we're not going to pay you for that. You know, there was a whole bunch of one-time costs that they tried to pull out to get that number down. If you're understanding what I'm saying, John, there was there was costs that they were saying that you know those won't be part of the deal, and we're saying, well, hang on a second. You know, it's it's been an important part of our deal, our business for many years, and we'd like to continue to use the benefit of this case, tickets to take customers or pass tickets uh, to customers to the Vancouver Canucks. So, you know, there's, there's little negotiations like that. And they're saying, let me give you a, maybe a better one. Um, you know, that person we don't feel needs to be a part of the business going forward. And let's just say that person was making $50,000. So that, that would come right off the, the bottom line. They're going to say, you know, Mark, we don't need that $50,000 job as part of the deal because we've got four people in the back room that here in our office can do that. So take that off. And, you know, it's one thing selling your business, John, but it's also, you know, you've built a team you that are very important to your business. So you, you fight for your, your team. You fight for your employees to be a part of the deal. Sure. So, but just to be clear, you know, stripping out costs like the Vancouver Canucks tickets or the, the $50,000 a year person that probably is redundant, those are things that, that you are trying to do to, as I understand it, to, to elevate or increase your EBITDA. And I'm, I'm assuming that the other side is saying, hey, wait a minute, if you guys have had Vancouver Canucks tickets for five years, I mean, that's a cost of doing business. That's part of your expense line item. You're, not, you're arguing to, to pull those costs out of your uh, cost base, whereas they're arguing to keep them in, right? Correct. I mean, we're, we're trying to build, you know, the, the bottom line and, and apply that multiple. Um, they're trying to grow our expense items, so they're going to pay less. So again, there's a little bit of tit for tat and, and an exchange on, okay, well, you guys, if you want this part of the deal, then we need this part of the deal. Got it. Got it. So there's a little bit of give and take um, and, and, and did you sign the LOI knowing, I mean, this is the first time through for you. Did you, you know, did you assume that there'd be still some negotiation or did you, were you in the position where you're like, okay, the LOI is the LOI. This is, this deal is basically done. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, you learn, you learn a terrific amount along the way, John. So, you know, as much as you frame it up in an LOI, you might come back to something two months later and say, wow, we forgot to include that, or we didn't think about that. We want this to be a part of the deal. So, you know, I don't want to say weekly, but every couple of weeks, there would be a conference call with different agenda items to talk about. And you'd work through it with, with <laughs> the many lawyers and many accountants on every phone call. And how long did it take between signing and executing the letter of intent, the LOI, and and actually, you know, a signed share purchase agreement? You know, probably five months. That's a lengthy. Uh, that's a lengthy time. How, how was your? How would you describe your mood during that that five month time? How, what, I mean, what were you like with the, around the dinner table at home? <laughs> You'd have to ask my wife, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, and maybe that's the, the one area that we haven't really talked about is the emotional side of doing a deal. And, you know, one day you could finish up a conference call or a discussion with, within the deal with your partners, with the, the, the potential buyers. And you think, geez, we're almost there. And then, you know, you're riding a high and 
this is the true value we're going to get for our business. All the employees are staying. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And everyone's happy. But then a curveball can come at you um, two weeks down the road and you're going, wow, this, you know, they're not giving us enough money for this one profit center. We're getting sold short. You know, how do we fix this? And, you know, they come back and they, you know what they want and they sink their teeth in and say, no, we're, the deal's not moving forward if this doesn't happen. So again, I go back to that emotional roller coaster and, and so many, so many different variables can come into play. But I will say, as we're, you know, talking about this, the, the buyers were very good to us. Um, they were negotiating, we were negotiating. Everyone had to keep in mind that we were working together going forward. So that's important to understand that, you know, you, you've got to negotiate in good faith on both sides of the fence because you are working together going forward in our case. When you got the the offer in the LOI, did it outline what proportion would be paid up front versus in and earn out? Yep. Yep. We were paid, uh, you know, we were paid 85% up front. We were uh, paid 15% um, earn out over three years, call it 5%, 5%, 5%. And, you know, if you look at the dates when we sold, we, we sold at the end of 06, beginning of 07, you know, things were very, very good. The, we were at the top of the market. And then we all recall what happened in 08 and 09 with the global financial crisis. And we still had numbers to hit. Um, and, you know, everyone, the business community did not know what was happening the next day, the next week, the next month, because it was, it, was, it was a very difficult business cycle, as we all recall. But we had to hit certain numbers, and, uh, and, and, and we did that. We did hit certain numbers. Um, that we wanted to, or that the buyers asked us to accomplish. The one thing, you know, you never look back or you try never to look back. The one thing that, uh, as much as I learned so many different things in, in, in this negotiation and selling this business, John, is we did not participate in the lift on the business during that earn out period, those three years, because we didn't know, we didn't ask, but, you know, we worked as hard as we ever did and we produced some very, very good numbers, and we hit our target, our earnouts, as I mentioned. We didn't participate in the lift going forward, so you're working for these new owners, and we did very well on our, our numbers, uh, but we didn't ask for that, and you know, you, you learn as you go. So when you just structure, so the earnout was 5% per year. It, was it tied to an EBITDA number or top-line revenue number, or what was, the, what was it triggered by? You know, um, I'm trying to recall again, we're calling, you know, close to 10 years ago. I think it was tied to the top line and it was tied to the top line and not the bottom line uh, because, you know, we didn't really have control of some new expenses um, or approaches that they would apply to the business. They might say, Mark, we understand that that profit center is making X dollars, but we want to try something different and apply this. Uh, there's a whole bunch of new costs coming in, but we think it's going to work long-term for our business. So I think our earnout focused on the top line, um, and, and which was, which was a good approach on their part because they did apply some other, um, expenses, if you will, uh, to the business. So we had no real big control on the bottom line. And did it work where if you, if you hit the first year's target, uh, that's great. You get your payout. And then the next year you're starting at, at ground zero again, or was it cumulative? In other words, did you, 
you know, how, how did that work? Did you get a fresh start in year two if you didn't make year one? Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, we did. Absolutely. Um, so, you, you know, they, they still looked for growth <laughs> because the deal was negotiated back in, in 06 um, when, you know, the business climate was that much better. So those numbers, those earnout numbers were established back then based on our financials, not knowing what was coming around the corner. So um, those numbers were established. So, you know, year one, again, trying to recall the specifics, um, John, I think was probably the toughest of the three years, but, you know, one of the years and maybe the second year, I, again, I can't recall, we might have got to 95% of our earnout numbers and missed it. And, and like I said, they were very good, um, buyers for us. They came in as a, you guys, you know, it's a very tough economy. You hit 95%. Here's your number. I think we hit the second and third year in the numbers and, and maybe oversubscribed and maybe that's what their motivation was in, in, you know, continuing to be good to us. Um, as we continue to work for them that they, you know, they wanted us to be good employees now, not owners, but employees. And then they would get that back in year two and year three as they did. You know, it's a fairly small, especially in a service business, it's a fairly small proportion of the deal to be put in an earnout, 15%. You're a minority shareholder. Were you ever tempted to just walk during those three years? I mean, the economy was tough. Was there, was there any sort of temptation on your behalf to say, I'm out? No, because one, I still loved the business. It was a great business. Um, and that's an interesting point in itself, you know, working for new owners and probably surprisingly, I probably worked a little bit harder for the new owners than I did for myself and my partners. And that's not taking any way, anything away from what we, you know, did as partners in building the business. But, you know, you've, you, you got some pride. You said you were going to hit those numbers and you worked hard to hit those numbers. Interesting. Interesting. I think that's an interesting, you know, uh, perspective, certainly that, uh, uh, you know, for for acquirers buying businesses, you know, I think that's a very delicate, uh, a delicate sort of alchemy, right? Because um, you're right. I think a lot of owners want to achieve. They're, they're driven by pride and 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 you know have been successful in many endeavors in their lives. Uh, at the same time, I think that could quickly go the other way if they feel like they're, they're not, it's interesting, uh, that in your case, it, it was a motivating factor to be able to, to say, Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're going to hit these numbers. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'll, I'll tell you point blank. I mean, their approach was, was smart. They've done this before. So, you know, they wanted to, you know, keep the partners in the business as they did. And, and I had a five-year employment agreement, John, yeah, three-year earnout, but a five-year employment agreement. You know, they wanted to transition the business. Again, I was the youngest of the four partners. Um, but ironically, um, I signed another five-year deal after that first five-year was done. I mean, I had younger kids and I didn't want to disrupt the family and I thought it made sense. They were very, very good to me. I was very good to them and it was a happy marriage and it doesn't always happen in these deals. But in, in our case, um, again, there was four partners, you know, one of the partners did not come along with a deal. One of the partners in Toronto came on for two years and then oh, two of the four partners stayed on for, you know, call it eight years in uh, once the deal was signed, which is very, very rare. 
Sure. When when you think about your partners, what was the the biggest bone of contention among the partnership group? Was there a group or a component of the you know the group that was you know, pushing for a certain you know deal point? Others like where did it get? Where did it come to a head between you and your other three partners? You know, John, I, I, I can't really recall one. Um, we were pretty tight. Um, you know, we, we worked hard at building this business. Um, we knew the exit was coming based on the, the initial discussions we had. And, uh, you know, we were, we were quite a team um, working through and through, through the negotiation or through building the business, through the negotiation and post post. Because as, as you recall, if we had a three-year earnout and one of the partners did not come along with the deal. He was still on the sideline cheering for us because he wanted to get his earnout numbers as well. So we, you know, influenced, I don't want to use the word controlled, but influenced his payout on that 15% of the deal. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, and for listeners, you know, there's a difference between you being an employee of a company and and being the owner of a company. And oftentimes the own the earnout is is a part of your ownership of the company. It's not part of your employment of the company. Uh, so your ability to achieve the earnout may be contingent on you being an employee, but it doesn't necessarily. And it, all deals are different. But you you're going to want to look at whether your earnout is the performance of the company contingent or whether it's uh, you know contingent contingent on your personal performance or whether you've got an employment agreement that, that covers those eventualities. So they are different, um, but interesting. So in one, in your case, one of the four founders was not an employee of the company during the earnout period. Correct. I hope you bought you a big stake at the end. You know, ironically, when the deal was actually signed and the money was transferred, I think we went to a big steak shop in Toronto <laughs> and celebrated. What else did you buy? I mean, did you buy, did you give yourself any sort of trophy for this achievement? Um, you know, it's funny, John, you, it, you, you go through this process, this emotional process and, and you sell and, you know, you, and we were paid well, you expect to feel different. And, you know, maybe just maybe because we stayed in the business, um, you know, we were happy, obviously. Um, but there wasn't that massive change that one might expect when they sell their business. I mean, because we were still working in the business, we still felt a part of it. We, you know, we built these businesses, we hired these people, we built these profit centers. So in our deal, we were still very well, you know, still connected. And I was still young. So I, I, I loved what I did. Um, I loved driving to work every day. And I loved working with the group of people that, that, that were our team. What are you doing now? Um, I, I mentioned there was a, a second five-year deal I signed. Um, got through about three years of that second five-year deal. Uh, my kids, the, you know, the variable, my kids were a little bit older. Um, maybe didn't need me or want me as much as as I was at the for their younger younger ages um and I got that you know I'm an entrepreneur I got that desire to maybe build another company and and uh, about a year and a half ago we um we started a new business and uh, in the conference and and trade show space um not in the real estate sector because I have a non compete to uh, to live up to but there were so many different ideas um that that we're out there and always love a challenge and and ironically john you know 
what I learned in that eight month process of selling a business, there was no one really focusing. I knew conferences, I knew shows, but there was no one offering a conference idea about selling businesses. And with all the businesses that will be sold, I, I can't remember the number, maybe $4 trillion over $4 trillion will exchange hands over the next uh, 10 years in North America of private businesses. But there was no one offering a conference, a high-level conference about selling a business. And because there was so much learned in our process, and because I, I really enjoyed the process and learning that much, you know, we launched uh, a new business and one of the brands that's part of that new business, that new conference business, is the Business Transitions Forum. And it's all about building value in your business. It's all about the exit strategy for business owners, demystifying that process of selling your business. And where can people uh, learn about uh, Business Transition Forums? We've, uh, we've got uh, some, we have a conference in, in Calgary, we have a conference in Vancouver, we have a, a conference in Toronto. And again, from a national perspective, and, and maybe, maybe in the U.S. as we're doing our research, no one's really offering this concept, um, high-level concept on the different steps, the understanding, the education process of selling a conference. So we've got the Business Transitions Forum in Calgary taking place November uh, 16th and 17th. We've got the Vancouver Conference, November 29th and 30th, and the Toronto um, Annual. These are all annual events, by the way, is next spring, next May in Toronto. Great. I'm proud to, uh, to be a presenter at the, uh, the, uh, the Calgary and Vancouver events coming up, so I'm, gonna, uh, I'm excited to, uh, to be invited to do that. So thank you again for, uh, for the opportunity to do that. Where, where can people learn about, um, like, what's the website? What's the URL people should go to? Uh, businesstransitionsforum.com. Uh, all three cities are shared there and there's, there's lots of, there's actually lots of content on the site as well, John, um, in addition to the programs and the full lineup of speakers and, and, uh, the different sessions, the different workshops, uh, and we've brought business owners into these discussions so they can share real life stories, experiences that they went through when selling their business. And again, to our earlier part of the discussion, every deal is different. So you're going to hear some war stories, some real life stories about how their businesses were sold. Maybe they sold 50% and there was a drag along for the other 50%. Maybe they sold 80% and they're participating in the growth of the 20%. So again, every deal is different. Everyone looks for something different in terms of their exit. So there's going to be many, many stories to share uh, with the business owners attending these conferences coming up in Calgary and Vancouver. Fantastic. Mark Stevenson, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, John. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L 